Welcome, Bill Nericho from San Diego State University, who's going to share with us a little bit about his journey in and through Latinx pop cultural imaginaries. Welcome, Bill. I'm very happy to be here. You've uh, pulled me out of my uh, re real uh, what is it? My uh, pandemonium cave, and I'm very happy to talk about uh, Latinx pop culture uh, with you. Tell me, Bill. Like, at what? I mean. What point in your life did you decide, I am going to dedicate a gazillion hours of my day and my life up until the day I die to research and write on issues of race, sexuality, gender, in pop culture, but also just in literature and cultural phenomena generally? Yeah, what, tell us, like, was it a light bulb moment and Maybe you can share a little bit about some kind of surprises along the way to that journey where you are today. Yeah, I guess it, there is an epiphany moment and it happens when I, uh, I was 19 years old. I was at the University of Texas at Austin. I was a biology major uh, planning to spend the rest of my life uh, researching infectious diseases. I guess I would be, I'd be really happy right now uh, during the COVID-19 panic. And I took an organic chemistry class and I was going to flunk it. It was uh, uh, mind shattering because I'd never really uh, failed uh, academically at anything. And I think I was, I think I had a D plus or something. It was a large lecture 300 student class uh, with a horrible professor. And it just happens that that same week, I had an English professor and his name was Lance Bertelson from Oceanside, California, which I didn't know about. And now I think it's hilarious because I just lived down the coast from Oceanside. And I was in office hour and Lance Bertelson told me, uh, hey, Bill, hey, Bill, uh, you ever thought of being an English professor? <laughs> I said, I said, no, what's it like? And he said, uh, well, when you travel, the university pays for it, and you only work eight months out of the year. <laughs> I said, wow, that sounds really good. And um, so I became an English major, and I started just studying mostly American, actually American and British literature. That was my, my focus. Around my senior year, I fell under the wing of uh, Ramon Saldiva, who's at Stanford now, and um, I took a couple of classes with him, and when I was a senior, he let me sit in on a graduate seminar he was teaching because I had been uh, admitted to um, an American Studies program at the University of Texas and a comparative literature program at Cornell. And I guess that's when it really... Uh, the world of Latin American cultural arts, of, uh, of Latino cultural arts, really uh, uh, turned my brain on fire. And uh, I was lucky enough to finish uh, uh, my degree at, at Cornell, which was weird because they didn't really have that many, they didn't have any Latino studies people, of course. This is the 80s. And uh, John Kronick, the, the late great um, editor of uh, PMLA, actually supervised my first graduate special study on Chicano literature. And then, this is what you get in the Ivies, luck upon luck. The semester after I worked with Kronick 
Carlos Fuentes comes to do a visiting uh, gig at Cornell for a semester, and I get appointed his TA. Wow. And from, the, from there on, it was uh, Latin American this, Latin American that. Uh, if we have time, though, there's a, there's a kind of break with Latin American literature that takes place my first year as an assistant professor. Uh, by then, this is 1988, I'm an assistant professor at the University of Connecticut, and I'm lecturing on Mexican intellectual history, and um, I always remember Orson Welles as Quinlan in Touch of Evil. He says, you people are touchy, but I was lecturing, and I could have sworn when I said Mexican intellectual, I heard a laugh from the back of the room, like a chuckle or a chortle mm. from this young woman who was my... I, I remember is my far left back of the room. And I, I kind of had a meltdown in the classroom. Uh, maybe I was too sensitive. Maybe she was just a closeted racist or out of the closet racist. But uh, I thought she was laughing at the, uh, the idea of the conjunction of those two words, Mexican and intellectual. Mm -hmm. And that really pushed me over the deep edge. Uh, it was a little after that incident that I started writing about Rita Hayworth and uh, mm. uh, about Speedy Gonzalez. And I really plunged into the study of the construction of, of, of Latinx subjectivities in American mass culture from the beginning of the 20th century now into the 21st century. So... Who knows what really happened that day? Maybe I was just being sensitive. Maybe I was feeling put upon. But it really changed the course of my career because I stopped being a, I mean, I published a little as a Latin Americanist, but mostly I started writing about uh, American mass culture. Leads me to my next question. <laughs> what is text mex? Well, that's it. That, I mean, that was, that was the, the result of, of 16 years of research into uh, the figuration of Mexicans, of Mexican-Americans, of Puerto Ricans, what have you, in American mass culture, convinced me that what we were dealing with was a, a, a wonderful, well, or a hateful uh, fabrication, uh, a, 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 a textile that had been woven, right? So Tex-Mex, I'm from Laredo. So, of course, Tex-Mex uh, Tex music, Tex-Mex food, that has always been in, in, my, in the back of my head. But I wanted to write about a Tex-Mex, and that's why the T's and brackets, that uh, habit of, I mean, that wonderful practice of ours from the 80s and 90s when we thought we were so cool. But the brackets allowed me to foreground the fact that we were dealing with, with uh, widely disseminated fabrications textiles woven adeptly to an end. And the end was the production of recognizable tropes that could be sold and resold and resold and resold again. So Tex-Mex is the story, uh, the backstory of the development of all the ugly things that comes out of our president's mouth. They came from that moment that moment after the turn of the century, the Mexican Revolution, Pancho Villa invading Columbus, New Mexico, where the wall is going up right now as we speak. The construction is right there in Columbus, New Mexico. And uh, uh, 
from that moment, the United States sent 25,000 troops, the expeditionary force, uh, none less, no less than George Patton, one of the young lieutenants leading men into northern Mexico. They never caught Pancho Villa. But what they brought with them was a retinue of photographers, of postcard salesmen, and uh, newsreel photographers. And uh, uh, in Tex-Mex, uh, there's this wonderful, horrible um, coincidence that the very moment that the equivalent of Instagram hits, hits us as a kind of social technology, that very second the United States is at war with Mexico. So you get newsreels of Mexicans, you get postcards of Mexicans, you get photographs of Mexicans, and they're all evil, they're all bandit, they're all dirty, they're all untrustworthy, and an industry is born. And so Tex-Mex, my book, is the story of the, of the invention of that industry. And, uh, you know, it came out in 2007. It took me 16 years to publish. Uh, I'm very proud of it, but I'm also kind of disgusted because it, it, it actually carries within it a kind of blueprint for uh, haters <laughs> who can uh, be inspired, I guess, by the century of stereotypes that have... Uh, you know, uh, uh, warped our own consciousness and uh, wreaked havoc with our existential sense of self. Seductive hallucinations. What? Where? Where are you seeing the subterranean kind of um, almost sort of nefarious work happening uh, in spaces today, especially coming in and around the Latinx right hallucination that's being constructed? Well, um, the phrase seductive hallucination in the subtitle of the book, of course, is a, is a, a tip of the sombrero to uh, Michel Foucault. It's, a, uh, it's the, the reminder that we are not ruled by oppression, but by pleasure. And there's nothing more pleasurable than seeing, once again, that which we've seen before. We get a little dopamine. Mm. Like heroin kick from seeing things we've seen before, and so in the present instance, the the uh, uh, well, I mean, both you and I have documented this in in mm. Brown TV, which we'll get to later. But uh, while there are, has been an increase in the number of uh, TV mm. or streaming vehicles that feature Latino and Latina protagonists. I would say that today, still by and large, the most common thing you're going to see is a Latino or Latina as a service worker or a Latino or Latina as a, as a, uh, as a narco or someone who transports drugs or someone who's into some sort of nasty, nefarious uh, criminality. So yeah. this, I should have called it Tex-Mex profitable hallucinations of the Mexican in America, because there's nothing more bankable than a Latino criminal. I, I mean, if I sometimes feel I should go up the street to LA and pitch a new show, you know, <laughs> because I know the trope so well, you know, we're in the wrong business, you know, we're absolutely in the wrong business. The bad hombres. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So just Talking Brown TV, what a great sort of project, right? Um, were there, you know, um, t 
tell me, were there surprises along the way in that journey, that sort of our co-piloting journey of talking hashtag Brown TV? Yeah, I guess the, I, I mean, the biggest was surprise was how, uh, uh, I don't even know if I've talked to you about this, how uh, freeing it was for me to be able to write with another person. I don't write with other people. I'm not one of those people in grad school who had a writer's group. Um, my, my wife, Leela, says I don't play well with others. You know, I... Uh, uh, but the, the, the flip side of that was after I published, uh, text next, uh, I was kind of, uh, stuck. I, I, I hadn't, uh, my next book contracted hygiene, wasn't able to finish it. It was kind of in a, kind of in a, uh, uh, I don't know, self-created, uh, creative prison of sorts. And what writing Brown TV with you allowed me to do was because of the way we wrote it in dispatches, in emails, in uh, correspondence. Sometimes I'd just send you a picture, you know, something I'd been thinking about. Uh, it really freed me from all of the hangups I guess I had accumulated bringing Tex-Mex to press, uh, which you had a hand in, you know. Uh, Tex-Mex was a very difficult book to bring to press because I don't write like a lot of other academics. And um, uh, I've actually figured out when I turned 50 a few years ago that uh, I wasn't supposed to become a professor. The, the university was supposed to find some way to get rid of me. But um, they failed, and I'm here, and I'm tenured, so, you know, screw them. Uh, and uh, so the biggest surprise about Brown TV is that we finished it and we finished it early, I think. And uh, it came to press on time. And uh, I mean, there were all of the problems that we're used to bringing books to press, you know, especially because of all the pictures and stuff. But uh, I'm very proud of, 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 of this book. And yeah, me too. I love this book and uh, everybody should go buy it, right? Everybody should. <laughs> um, yes, please. Hashtag Brown TV. Please uh, do. What about you? Let me throw it back at you. Uh, uh, you know, I know, I know you publish a lot of books, yeah. but what was different about this one? Yeah, I mean, I think just kind of piggybacking on what you were saying, there was, there's a, there was a, an energy and centered energy coming out of the synergy. And I think, um, you know, putting the same kind of cultural object in front of both of us and then seeing how our brains kind of interface with that and creating knowledge on the spot in and around that object was like just like mind blowing. It was, you know, the best roller coaster ride I've ever been on. <laughs> Um, yeah, and I think, you know, being able to share that with others and the feedback we've been getting um, in our in the way that we write it as a very accessible work and at the same time serious and, you know, there's scholarly rigor, but it's a way, in a way, it's our, it's our hallucination that we're inviting people into that's a productive hallucination, a hallucination that pops the bubble of the dominant hallucination that's been kind of enveloping all of us for so long right yeah i yeah hallucination word is a is, is a word for me that has many positive 
uh, overtones. It's not just the, the negative idea of a, of a mass produced propaganda that we then inhale unknowingly. Uh, I think that you and I in this book went out of our way to, um, uh, to write and to engage in such a way that any reader, any general reader uh, would be interested. I mean, we throw in the pointy headed intellectual stuff here and there, but by and large, it's you and me watching television and talking to each other about it. Yeah, and inviting everybody to sit on the couch with us, right? That's right. Come on over. Come on over. Tell me a little bit, Bill, about you know how you bring this into your classroom spaces and why it matters. Um, ever since I began, this includes, uh, I've been a professor now since 88, so that's uh, 32 33 years. I, I did the math the other day, and it's, it's like 66, 70 or so different classes that I've taught. And every one of them has uh, had significant representation of, of uh, Chicano writers and Latin American directors and uh, Latinx creatives. Uh, all, all of my classes in literature are a mix of not just literature, but of film, of comic books, of television, of stream, and now of streaming media. And um, one of the things I've done over my career is I've always uh, been asked to teach these large lecture courses for general education audiences. And I've never looked at that as a, as a burden. In fact, I love, I love teaching uh, non-majors as much as I love teaching uh, literature majors, but uh, I love going into the masses and trying to uh, infect. I mean, that's the only only word. You know, creatively vaccinate mm -hmm. thousands now of students. Over ten thousand students I've had, maybe fifteen. Um, vaccinate them against this plethora of demeaning and disgusting stereotypes that make it easy for the general audience to think of Latinos and Latinas as second-rate citizens. It's not that we are second-rate, it's that there's a reward for thinking in that way because then you just go with the flow. Mm. You go with the flow, it's really, it's, it, it, it's really easy. Um, my classes are uh, uh, very theme-driven. I, I try to uh, uh, catch on to something that is very current. Uh, and, and sometimes I'll even pander. Like last semester, I taught a 300-student course called uh, Naked Sexy Beasts. And the, re and the reason I did that was I was told that because of changes in the general education rules for the California State University, that the class wouldn't fill. And, of course, it filled. It filled uh, because the title was eye grabbing. I use eye grabbing uh, graphics. Uh, I teach contemporary works with classics. Uh, I'll cut in a Black Mirror episode. I'll throw a Love and Rockets comic book at them, uh, all driven by the theme. And though these courses, by and large, are not focused on Latinx culture, I've only maybe over the years taught five or six classes that were pure Chicano lit or Latina lit or Latin American lit. There are always Mexican American writers and creatives in my classes. And they're there because it's my area of specialization, but they're also there because they're good, because they rock. Uh, just before 
um, just before we went into panic pandemonium COVID-19 mode, uh, the last class that I taught for my uh, beautiful undergraduates in uh, English, I'm teaching American Lit from the Civil War to the present. And it's called uh, Seductive American Nightmares, right? And I taught uh, Tomás Riveras y no se lo tragó la tierra and the earth did not swallow me. Is one of the most moving classes I've ever had. It was probably so moving because I knew that's it. My day gig is up. I'm going to be talking in these little boxes to Zoom televisions instead of being in a room with people who have read the same book. But uh, uh, Tomas Rivera's novel, which is uh, which some might see as 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 uh, uh, simple or small or uh, blew their minds. And we had a remarkable class. So um, uh, this ability to uh, move in the classroom between uh, canonical and non-canonical works, written works and screened works, increasingly now streamed works, uh, has, has allowed me to have an impact I wouldn't otherwise have. Beautifully stated. Um, you know, sort of taking it back to our kind of maybe um, we have COVID-19, but we've had, right, this kind of, oh gosh, what, what you, you talked about infection, you talked about hallucination, and it's kind of all happening, and it's been happening. We are the majority underrepresented historically in this country, demographically, and yet, so we're in those 18% range, and yet we're less than 3% represented. And as you mentioned already, the bad hombre, right? The narco, you know, the kinds of things that we've been sort of represented when we are on the screen. Um, yeah, like, what's your gut, your visceral response to this? I mean, finally, a cold Latina, that's how, like, Tecate beer is sold, right? <laughs> I mean, the first one... I, I mean, like you, I'm a cons I'm a consumer. I'm I'm just a consumer of uh, of of mass culture, and so the first thing I do when I see these things is I laugh. You know, in Tex Mex, I talked about growing up in Laredo, and when Speedy Gonzalez came on Channel Eight, you know, they they own like two or three different little eight minute shorts or six minute Warner Brothers shorts. When they showed them, oh, me and my sister would be doing backflips and laughing our asses off because we, we were just not used to, on the American channels, hearing that accent, even though it's Mel Blanc, right? You know, talking like these. And you would hear that and it would bring joy, right? But uh, so the first reaction, I think, is the human reaction when you see a stereotype is, Oh, I see that. I get it. I get that. The thing you got to do, or the thing that I ask my students to do, my readers to do, is then to take the next step, which is what we do in the university. And we ask ourselves if laughter is the most basic human emotion, what triggers it? And in this regard, it's, it's not just the recognition, it's the repeated recognition of pejorative representations that then you internalize at a sick psychic level. See, I mean, that's the downside of 
of these representations. For instance, you know, you've got Sexy Latina, cover of Latina magazine, right? Um, ¿Cómo se llama? What's her name? Uh, uh, Michelle Rodriguez. Hi. Um, no, is, is no. that Michelle Rodriguez? No, 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 it's not. Um, no, no, it's my bad. Um, why am I blanking on her? Because we're stupid, man. Jane, this is Jane the Virgin. That's right. <laughs> so, you... There's nothing wrong with a beautiful Latina woman. There's, there's, uh, yeah, they're, they're attractive. And, but the preponderance of that representation, the, the fact that you've got to choose Latina as sexy bombshell or Latina as maid service worker, and that these two tropes predominate. And sometimes they're the both, right? <laughs> you've got devious maids and they're service workers and they're sexy, right? And produced by a Latina, the show. Mm -hmm. uh, it, I guess my reaction to this is it, 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 it varies. I mean, sometimes I get upset. Sometimes I just laugh. Sometimes I get turned on. Sometimes I get disgusted. Um, we are uh, subject to the entertainment that we watched and, and, and we are its victims. And we're also uh, like the guys chained into the chained to the rock in the cave in Plato's Republic book seven. Sometimes we don't even know that what we're looking at is fabricated. We just think it's reality because a camera shot it. It's got to be real, right? It's got to be based on a true story. But uh, 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 so I get all kinds of emotions when I see these kinds of images. Yeah, Gina Rodriguez, my friend. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, we have, you know, J-Lo, uh, uh, you know, in, in sort of all these different ways that she's been kind of represented. I, one of us needs to just do a book on J-Lo, right? <laughs> I think that would be you. I think that's you. I think that's you because I had a friend who knew her and she's not the nicest person. At least that's the word on the street. So I don't think I could write a book about it. All right. All right. So, uh, yeah. So Bill, um, you know, tell, tell our audiences a little bit about, you know, your methods in the classroom. I know one thing that you're famous for. One, your, your students absolutely love you. The other thing that you're known for is packing out the house. I mean, like you said, you know, there was, you know, a course that there were, people were worried that it wouldn't have the enrollments and you end up, you know, enrolling over 300 students, et cetera. You know, what, what is the trademark Nericho? I mean, what is the- Loud. <laughs> I'm loud, uh, I'm improvisational, I'm performative, um, I'm extroverted. I, uh, um, I, I for instance, uh, uh, every Halloween, I come dressed it up in costume. Uh, I taught Carlos Fuentes' Aura last year. I began the class in full darkness. I taught by candlelight with the Gregorian chants playing. Um, I'll bring in guest speakers. I've brought you many times. I'll bring in celebrities. I like to, um, I like to provide for my students what I like, and I like to be surprised. Uh, I like to not know what's going to happen next. 
Uh, I like to be taken on a journey. And so um, some of my methods in the classroom are really, it's like a concerted or sustained uh, effort at juxtaposition. I always like to set things side by side for the students in ways that will be disturbing or illuminating or uh, challenging. And uh, I, I like to make them laugh. I, had the, I, I could tell you one of the most amazing moments of my life as a professor is I was teaching uh, intro to lit class focused on comedy. That was the theme. It was just called comedy. And the centerpiece of the class was the Seinfeld episode where uh, Jerry and George and uh, Kramer and Elaine have a bet about who can hold out from masturbating the longest. Okay, so it's a sitcom. It's a 22-minute teleplay, right? That's what a sitcom is. But when you watch a sitcom in a room with 500 people, it was amazing. It was, tr it was transformative. I, I'd never heard people laugh so loud in a, as a collective, uh, you know, I mean, maybe one of those comedy concerts like with George Lopez in San Antonio, where you've got like 5,000 people. But uh, for me in the classroom, watching Seinfeld, teaching comedy, but being in the dark in that room with 500 other souls, 1,000 eyes fixed on the screen, laughing their souls out, uh, it was just amazing. So I, I like to keep things moving. Like I say, I uh, play with props. I play with the room. I play with the lights. Uh, open every class with uh, music, uh, with, a, with a music video whose theme is tied secretly in some way to what I'm going to be lecturing that day. Um, the it's very participatory. I get incredible engagement from the students. The st we do have a discussion in the class, even the 500 student class, I had eight TAs running around with microphones. Everybody got a chance to speak that wanted to speak. Uh, and uh, so I just like to have fun. You know, I, life's short. Uh, I've always said, you know, I, I, I wanted my tombstone, you know, he wasted no one's time. Because <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but in undergrad and grad school, I mean, oh my God, these, uh, these, I mean, I had some magnificent professors, but I had some crap professors and they reassured me that damn, if I couldn't do uh, better than them in the classroom. So uh, I think because, I think because my background is working class, because I've always done community theater, because I've been acting since I was like seven. Uh, the classroom for me is just an extension of that. And I try to make it a, a, a kind of movable feast of the imagination uh, for, for my students. Love that, movable feast for the imagination. You're also director of SDSU Press. <laughs> God, I mean, okay, so here, let's put the other hat on. but. You know, I mean, of course, I'm sure you get this question all the time, you know, how do you manage to do it all? But, but the, the, maybe the larger question would be, like, why? I love books. I love design. Uh, I started working in 94, 1994, with Harry Polkenhorn, then the director of SDSU Press. And I, I kind of hoodwinked him and convinced him that I knew how to do graphic design. 
I'd never designed a book in my, my life. I, I designed one cover for a journal called Camera Obscura with a, with a Speedy Gonzalez collage that I designed back in the day. Um, but he let me. And I taught myself how to design and uh, eventually how to do layout and how to typeset. Uh, books over the 20 some years that I was working at the press and then three or four years ago Harry uh, uh, retired not to be an old fart retired professor he retired from being a professor and now is a full-time psychoanalyst <laughs> we got some great professors at San Diego State so now he's a shrink and I get to run the press uh, I, I I run the press because it's a labor of love. I receive no salary for running a, ma a major West Coast university uh, press. And I know people tell me all the time, well, you should negotiate and, uh, you know, you're not getting your, you're not getting your worth. And I, and, and, and that's true. I should negotiate uh, for a big fat salary for running SDSU press. But the trouble with that, and the, tr and the university defunded SDSU Press in um, 2009 in the middle when the bubble burst in California. And so they cut the $20,000 a year funding they used to give. And um, people tell me, you should negotiate to get that back. And the answer to both those questions is when people pay you money, they own you. <laughs> they tell you what to do. They cramp your style. And for me, SDSU Press is a labor of love. And I get to work with a great team of editors uh, at San Diego State. Uh, we have eight uh, other professors who are the internal board of directors. We've got an external board all over the country uh, of directors, and, including yourself. And uh, so with, with my graduate student interns and undergraduate interns, we just make it work. Yeah, it's amazing. And also you're giving those students all, you're basically setting them up to have a, a like this other incredible skill set, right? Kind of industry level skill set. Um, Bill, let me ask you, you're publishing graphic novels, graphic nonfiction it's, uh, in your, in, in, <laughs> at, in this press. You have your trade, you have your imprint now. Um, I mean, the world maybe isn't even. I am the host now. Hey. I can't hear you. Hold on, Bill. I don't know what happened there. Uh, you froze. Um, you okay. totally froze in the middle of that. Okay, let me, yeah. Um, hold what on. happened with you? Could you still hear me? Yeah, I just want to make sure we're recording, which um, we are. Okay, good. I'll just cut that out. Okay, good. Okay. So let me do this one more time. Um, share the screen. So we were just talking about Amatl Comics, and we are recording... Is there a reason that the slide is cut off at the top or that's just how it does? I think it just, uh, I can, I can redo the, no, let's just keep going. Let's okay. Just, um, so 
Yeah, so you're publishing, Bill, you are, you have an imprint, a model, com comics, you know, for with yeah. SDSU Press. You're publishing graphic nonfiction, fiction. You know, tell me, like, what in the heck, like, an academic press that's gone for this space? Um, hey, we're going to have to pause. Are you seeing me? Yeah. Because all of a sudden, I left the screen, and I don't know why. Oh, there we go. Okay. All right, one more time. Go ahead. So SDSU Press director, and now you are kind of curating an, an imprint of the press that is dedicated to graphic nonfiction and fiction. Is the world not the limit for you, Bill? <laughs> I'm jealous. I saw that you had, well, is it Latinx graphics or Latino graph? What do you have with OSU? Yeah, Latino graphics. Lati I saw Latino graphics on there. Who the hell does he think he is at running his own comic book publishing company? I could do that. And so I started Amatul Comics, and, uh, and we've done two issues now, uh, your own book, Latinx Comic Book Storytelling, and uh, More Than Money um, um, uh, by, oh, my God, she's going to keep <laughs> Dominguez. There she is, Claudia Dominguez. Um, and uh, I, I love comic books. I, grew, I learned how to read at my grandma Anna's bed on 619 Mier in Laredo, Texas. She used to hide comic books underneath the mattress, and me and Josie, my sister, would go over to Anna's house, and we read Sad Sack, we read Betty and Veronica, Richie Rich, Big Lotta, Little Dot, Casper, uh, Hot Stuff. I loved, loved, loved those comics. I'm uh, lucky enough to have been published writing about comics, and now I'm the director of the press, and like I said, they don't give us any money, so we can do whatever the hell we want. And so I saw you with a with a comic book initiative and i said we can do that we can do that and 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 hopefully in the future you know we can collaborate you know mar it doesn't need to be marvel versus dc okay it could be marvel and dc you know? all right i'm down i'm down the big the big two will be Marvel <laughs> comics and latino graphics i like that so mextasy you now okay now you're doing traveling exhibits and a tv show tell right. tell the world about this well the tv shows uh not gonna happen but the art exhibit did what what happened was that uh, uh i got a call from a museum in mccallan uh texas uh, actually from south texas college uh rachel brown called me about 10 years ago and what had happened was that uh, there had been an increasing number of seizures of art. So artists from Mexico who were going to exhibit in, in, uh, in the valley, uh, sometimes they would get their, their art uh, seized at the border. And this happened. This happened to an artist who had been invited to South Texas College to do an exhibition. And so they were left without an exhibition. And, and Rachel had been reading Tex-Mex because a friend of hers had suggested it to her through Facebook. So I got I, I to gotta give Zuckerberg some credit, that son of a bitch. But um, 
she calls me and says, uh, uh, Professor Naricho, Bill, uh, have you ever thought of doing your book, Text Mex, as a gallery exhibition? And of course, I said, well, no, I, no I've, never, I've never thought of that. And, and she said that she read the book closely, and she saw that many of the artifacts in the book were uh, my per, from my personal collection. So she said, why don't you put all those things in a box and we'll do an exhibition based on your book. And I said, okay. And then, and then she paused a minute and she said, I'm so sorry. We, we can only pay you $3,000. <laughs> I said, what the, what the hell? Um, you know, as English professors, we're lucky to get $200 uh, in bus fare for giving a lecture. So I, I put the phone down and I screamed, ah! <laughs> and then I said, oh, I'd be happy to do that. So we had an exhibition and it was a huge hit. I mean, it was, it was, it was hit. And I love, as much as I love the world of publishing and making books, uh, museum galleries, art galleries. I, I mean, to be curating my own show with my my own my own artworks and my own collection of art uh, was just in, in, incredible. So um, there's Mexstasy, which is based on Tex-Mex, Seductive Hallucinations of the Mexican in America. And then I got a call from two Mexican producers who wanted to turn Mexstasy, the whole idea of, uh, uh, of the history of Latinos in the past and in the present, making an impact on American culture. They wanted to make a TV pilot. And so I spent two years of my life uh, developing a TV show. We produced a full length pilot. Uh, we pitched and we pitched. Uh, I pitched to Lionsgate. We almost got picked up. We pitched to uh, uh, HBO. We pitched to NBC. We pitched to National Geographic. And I went full on Hollywood, full on Miami Beach. I hung out with uh, celebrities. I spent two years trying to land the show. It didn't get picked up. So next to see the TV show is, as we say, uh, in development, on turnaround or uh, on hiatus. But next to see the exhibition, if it hadn't been for COVID-D, I would have had three exhibitions this spring. Well, it's uh, if I feel like Tex-Mex is the is the text that keeps on giving, Bill. <laughs> yeah, when those royalty checks come in, I'm very happy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know, this is kind of bringing your all of your sort of knowledge to a particular moment that just happened, a, a very sort of significant historical moment, the Super Bowl 2020 halftime, and the crazy kinds of responses in and around that. But um, I, I, for the first time I've heard the verb, the use of wife as a verb, I want to wife her, right? Someone had tweeted with, uh, and, you know, with JLo, I want to wife JLo. Anyway, um, apart from sort of dissecting that whole space, um, what was your, like, this is a kind of incredible moment for us, right? Oh, it was, it was, I got you already know I'm not a big JLo fan. I already I already confessed. I already did. So I wasn't expecting much. I was really uh delighted, pleased, uh wowed by the halftime 
uh, performance. Uh, in particular, because of my biases by Shakira, who I really dig and love and have followed her career and her, uh, her outreach work that she does in, in communities and so forth. But as a spectacle, to have two Latinas front and center at uh, the Super Bowl, America's Super Bowl, that was like, wow, miralas, miralas. And, and, and they killed. They killed. It was, it was a, a beautiful performance, just uh, uh, out of this world amazing. Yeah, really, really extraordinary. And uh, yeah, like you, I mean, having this kind of, you know, American pie kind of moment and suddenly we've got the empamada there, right? Um, and the sopapilla and the, you know, all the goodness of our culture is kind of being represented and nobody holding back and completely kind of owning themselves on the stage there. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. Um, yeah, the, the children in cages. Yeah, you know, um, yeah. don't expect that. Yeah, no, it's very... Um, uh, you know, I think what we're, you and I are both saying here is that for once, maybe in a very mainstream space, the choreographed performance. Yeah, All right. Let's pause. Okay. Let's, let's pause and restart. Uh, someone's ringing my doorbell and it might be something urgent. So okay. I'll be right back. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So, yeah, Bill, I think what we're both getting at here is that for the first time in a very mainstream space, we have this kind of choreographing of a performance where Latinxes across the country are the ideal audience. They're the intended audience. And anyone else is kind of secondary, right? They're welcome to, to the show, but it's, it was really for us, right? Well, I, as much as it as much as it can be at the NFL's biggest event, uh, I I think that it shows that a significant uh, percentage of uh, of suits in corporate America are getting wise to the fact that this uh, uh, brown wave isn't going anywhere. You know that uh, mm. our present. Our present president excluded. Yeah, uh, the future is very much of the United States is one that's going to be uh, uh, decidedly Latino and Latina, and that uh, the entertainment, as a result, is going to have to be a reflection of this of this uh, growing uh, mass of people, not just consumers. Mm -hmm. Of course, the Super Bowl is all about. <laughs> eyes on the screen and, and corporate dollars. And uh, this, this, this show was no different, this Super Bowl mm. halftime show. Yeah. But, uh, but the fact that you've got, you know, mainstream entertainers uh, choreographing uh, children in cages, uh, Puerto Rican nationalism, uh, as people are quaffing their beer across America, is uh, it was a remarkable moment in, in United States entertainment history. So if you were gonna pick one area where you felt like there was a real vitality happening in Latinx pop culture, where would that be, Bill? Yeah. 
for me, I'm kind of torn. I'm torn between the idea that it's, oh, we're going to, you know what? Let's pause. I'm going to decouple messages from my Mac. So Bill, if you were to pick an area of sort of culture, cultural production today, pop culture, um, especially thinking about Latinx creations, agency, complexity, where would you put your sort of your energy? Where are you seeing the energy happening today? Yeah, for me right now, it's it's a neck and neck tie between uh, Latinx graphic arts and illustration and uh, Latinx uh, fiction and nonfiction, uh, creative writing. Um, the when it comes to creative writing, uh, right now I'm a I'm a I've always been a huge fanboy of the work of Miriam Gerba, uh, Long Beach. Uh, a school teacher by day and amazing New York Times lauded writer uh, by night. And, and one of the women, of course, who led the, led the charge in the uh, anti-American dirt movement, which was uh, quite, a, quite, a, quite a scandal, quite a spectacle. Um, her book, Mean, I, I've taught it now four times, uh, never fails to get an electric uh, reaction uh, from my students and my student body. I mean, we're an HSI at San Diego State, so there's a fair number of Latinos in my general education class. But my classes are predominantly, I don't know, 60, 70 percent, 55, maybe 60, 70 percent white. Uh, they dig it. They love Miriam Gerber. She's the most popular speaker I've I've had there in in ages, other than yourself. Um, and then in, 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 in illustration, I mean, not only do we have the ongoing uh, Dickens-like career of the Brothers Hernandez, who are still uh, bringing it on into 2020, but we've got a whole new generation of, uh, of graphic artists whose work I follow largely on Instagram, right? Mm -hmm. Someone needs to write the article about Latinx artists on on Instagram, because increasingly um, museums are not where you're going to see the best fine art. It's going to be on on Instagram. Who would have thunk it that a social media vehicle would be such a highly charged, successful platform for for the arts? Thank you, Bill. And um, what can I say? Um, thank you for the gift of your time of the journey that you've had and that you will continue to have with your students, uh, your readers, your um, public audiences with your curated spaces. Thank you, Bill Nericho, for joining Professor Latinx. Thank you, Fede. It was a blast. I had a good time. 